Today we're going to be continuing in our miracle series. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 17 through 26. Verses 17 through 26. This is an incredible story that maybe some of you are familiar with. This is the story of when Jesus heals the paralytic man who was let down through the roof by his friends. And let me tell you something. I've got like six weeks worth of sermons here in this text, okay? So just get ready, buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. I've been praying all week that God would specifically do two things. Specifically, that he would lead those of us who are not yet in Christ to himself. And then specifically, that he would call out some of us to go to the nations, And I believe he's going to do that today because that is in accord with his will. That is in accord with what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. So will you pray with me, and we're going to jump right in. Holy Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the word of God that you have given to us, that you have kept pure through the ages that you have delivered to us, that points us to your Son, Jesus Christ, and the life that we can have in him by faith. And Lord, as we open your word, would you do what only you can do? Would you call those of us who are spiritually paralyzed to get up and walk today? And Lord, would you call some of us to the nations, to the people who have not yet heard your name? Lord, would you do it? For it's not by my might nor my power, but by your spirit we declare in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 17, Mark gives us the same story in chapter 2, and then Matthew tells us the same story as well. And Mark tells us that he is in a home, he's in a home in Capernaum, and this is where Jesus made his headquarters, okay? So when Jesus began his ministry, he made his ministry headquarters in the city of Capernaum, and that was the place that he would kind of leave from and come back to continually. We pick up the story about halfway into the ministry of Jesus, By this time, he has already done a few things, and the word is getting out. He has turned water into wine. That's some of our favorite stories, right? He has healed a leper. He has cast out demons, and he has spoken and taught about the kingdom of God in synagogues from Jerusalem through Judea and all the way into Galilee. And now we find him in a home in Capernaum. We're not sure whose home he's in. It's possible that it's in Simon Peter's home. We know that just prior to this, Simon Peter's mother-in-law had a high fever. So high that they were concerned for her life. And Jesus healed her. Well, the word is out that Jesus, this healer, this teacher, is now in Capernaum. And it brings us to this moment. Luke tells us, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, 
Some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and walk. Go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have never seen anything like this before. And this is where we find ourselves. This text begs us to ask at least three questions. So today we're going to ask three questions, and the first is this. It's actually the question that the Pharisees and scribes ask, but they don't do it earnestly. The first question is, who is this man? Who is this fellow? The second question that this passage begs us to ask is this, what is our greatest need? And lastly, it begs begs us, it implores us to ask this question. Who are we bringing to Jesus? These are the questions that we're going to unpack as we dive into this story. So let's start with the first question that the Pharisees ask without earnest. They've already decided who he is. They say, who is this man? Who is this fellow? People were coming from everywhere. The healings were taking place. Many were coming for the show. Many were coming to be healed. Many were coming because they simply wanted to be a part of all the buzz. The word was on the street. This man named Jesus is doing things that we have never seen before. And if we will get there and watch, maybe something will happen in our presence that we can go and tell others about. But many still didn't really know who he was. Who is this fellow? This is the question that all of us need to ask because of what we're about to see from the lips and hear from Jesus. Look at what takes place. The paralyzed man is lowered into the midst of Jesus, to the feet of Jesus. Don't miss his placement. To the feet 
of Jesus. And everyone's expecting Jesus to heal the man because they've heard that he has healed and cast out demons, healed the sick. They have expectations. But in this moment, Jesus doesn't just meet their expectations. He does something greater. He says this, Man, verse 20, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine with me just for a minute, the scribes and the Pharisees, those who have given their very lives to memorizing and knowing the Scripture, a religious pursuit of trying to know God and be made right with God, who have been holding together really the lines of what is good doctrine, saying within these boundaries we can live. And they're coming to hear about this healer. And so far, this is interesting, so far in the ministry of Jesus, he is not yet at odds with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. But in this moment, in this moment, everything changes. From this point forward, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are seeking to do Jesus harm. They are planning, they are spying, they are doing their best to get Jesus to the cross because they believe that what he just did was blasphemy. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And in case we're mistaken, I want to make very clear, Jesus isn't saying like we say to each other, God forgives your sins. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, I forgive you. And when he says that, the religious leaders flip their lid. Like, they don't know what to do except pick up rocks and begin to throw stones, for the law requires it. That if somebody claims to be God, he is blaspheming unless he actually is. And if he is, then that changes how we respond to him. Yet the religious leaders were so wrapped up in their pursuit, their arrogance, their pride to believe that on their own they could be made right with God. You see, the difference between religion and the gospel of grace is as far and wide as the east is from the west. They have no similarities. They have no place together. Religion says, if I will do the right things, I will be made right with God. The gospel of grace says, your sin has separated you from God and there's nothing you can do dead in your sins to make yourself right with God. Therefore, by grace, the Father has sent the Son to live a perfect life for us and to die a sacrificial death so that by faith we can be made right with God. And now I'm stepping all over my second question, aren't I? What is our greatest need? But before we get there, Jesus doubles down on his claim to be God. Did you see it in the text? He didn't just say, I forgive your sins. He recognizes the thoughts and the speak 
of the Pharisees as they're saying, who is this fellow? Who is this guy? And then Jesus shows up with Old Testament Daniel chapter 7 prophecy of the coming Messiah and says, whoa, 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 just so it's clear, just so you know who I am, I am taking the title of the Son of Man. And Jesus would then use that title 80 times through the rest of his ministry. If you're a first century Jewish person, especially a scribe or a Pharisee, when you hear Jesus say the title Son of Man and that he claims it for himself, your ears immediately perk up. And you're thinking Daniel chapter 7. And if there was any confusion that he just claimed to be God by forgiving your sins because their theology was right, only God can forgive sins, their conclusion was wrong about who God is and what he was about to do. Daniel chapter 7, you should find it on your screen. I want to give you a picture of who Jesus is claiming to be and ultimately who we as Christ followers believe that he is. Daniel chapter 7. The prophet Daniel has these night visions, and he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one, here it is, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages would serve who? Him, the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. This is who Jesus claims to be. And now the Pharisees say, we have to do something about this Jesus. You see, they were okay with a healer amongst them. They had heard tales of Elijah. They knew of Elisha. And some have even said that Moses was a healer. Jesus was not the first healer. They were even okay with Jesus being a prophet. Someone who spoke the truth about God by pointing away from themselves. But now Jesus has crossed the line, you see. Now he claims to be God. He can no longer be a good prophet because he's no longer pointing away from himself to God. He's pointing to himself as Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh to take away our sins. And now we have a problem. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says that we should not think so small of ourselves. We should not, we should not find ourselves in a place, he says, <laughs> where, where we believe that Jesus didn't claim to be God. And because he claimed to be God, we can't walk away thinking that he's just a good person or just a good healer, or just a good prophet. 
But because he made the statement that he is God, that he forgives sins, that he is the son of man, now we're put into a situation where we have to decide. We have to do something about it. You see, he can no longer be a good prophet because he claimed to be God. So either Jesus is one of three things, C.S. Lewis says. He's either a liar from the pit of hell who deserves to be killed immediately. Or he's a lunatic. Like he is just absolutely nuts. Like this guy is delusional above all people we've ever experienced being delusional in their lives. Or he's Lord. He is who he says that he is. You know, there's this weird thought today in our culture that we don't have to do something with Jesus. There's this weird thought that he never claimed to be God, but the New Testament, the Gospels, don't let us get away with that. Because Jesus claimed to forgive sins. He claimed to be the Son of Man of Daniel 7. He says, I am the I am. You remember the the, the series we just came out of? There's now no room for anyone to say anything about Jesus except liar, lunatic, or Lord. What's it going to be? What's it going to be for you? What's it going to be for your friends? Who will they find Jesus to be? Leads us to our next question. What is our greatest need? I want you to step into the story with me for just a minute. Can you imagine this? A paralytic man. We don't know how long he was paralyzed. We don't know if he was born that way. Maybe something bad happened to him at some point in his life. Maybe a disease or maybe he fell down some stairs. Maybe he got hurt at work. We don't know. The scriptures don't give us that information. We just know that on this day, a paralytic man woke up, probably thinking that this day would be like every day he's experienced in his life. Things would probably go about the same way. You know, in the first century, being a paralyzed man probably meant some things. It probably meant that you weren't going to be married. It certainly meant that you couldn't work. It meant that you were going to have to rely on people for their love and their service to you for the rest of your life. This man's need was real. This man's need was visible. This man's need was urgent. I can imagine this man waking up, can't move, can't go anywhere, and all of a sudden, four friends, Mark tells us, show up to where he is. They look him in the eye and they say, friend, we have heard that Jesus of Nazareth is here. And we have been told of all the things that he has done. We're going to get you to him. 
and they pick up the bed together, all four of them. And they begin to walk towards the place where they have heard that they can find Jesus. And the closer and closer they get, the more tired they become. Have you ever tried to carry another person? They're straining with all of their might and all of their strength as they carry their friend one step at a time. And the closer they get, the more they hear. The noise is taking place. And with every step they take, their faith is growing because they know that what they heard is true, that Jesus is right there. And they fix their eyes upon the place where Jesus can be found. And they continue to put one foot in front of the other. They arrive at the home and they find themselves in a place where they can't get in. Because they're not the only ones who heard the good news. They can't get in. People don't care about this man's need, although it's visible. They're saying, we're not going to create room for you through this crowd to get to Christ. And so the friends, I would imagine, set him down to take a break and begin to debate among themselves what they're going to do. And if those four men are anything like you and me, it probably sounded something like this. Hey, these people don't have any love in their hearts. Look at this man and his need. Get out of the way. Hey, it's our turn. We need to get our friend to Jesus. I can hear another guy that's maybe a little more sensible saying, hey, maybe we can wait this thing out. Maybe the crowd will begin to disband at some point and we can get our friend to Jesus then. (laughs) I hear another guy begin to look around. He's the strategizer. He's thinking. And he goes, hey, guys, you see those stairs over there? What if we carry him up the stairs to the roof? The other friends are like, dude, Jesus is in the house. What are we doing on the roof? Like, no, dude, like, we're going we're gonna to put him through the roof. Well, what are you talking about, put him through the roof? Bro, we're going to wreck the place. Like, we're going to de-roof the roof, Mark says. Like, we're going to take this thing off. The other friends are like, dude, I don't think that, like, I don't have the money to pay that back. What are you talking about? But they all look at each other with eyes of faith and say, let's do it. So they look at the man laying down, they catch his eyes, they pick him up, they haul him up the stairs, they take him to the roof, and they begin to destroy someone else's property. Like, the the roofs are not like, hey, we just removed a tile. No, 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 no. It's like mud combined with thatch, and then you got like this tile on top, and it's like straight up deconstruction zone. Right? Like it's some of our like best dreams. Like we want to show up with a sledgehammer and just destroy something. Like these guys are living their best life. Can you imagine Jesus teaching? Have you ever been interrupted when you were teaching? Have you ever been interrupted when you were talking to your kids? None of us, right? Jesus is teaching probably about the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, some sand starts to fall on his head. It's like, what is going on in this place? Bro, if it's Peter's house, I'm going, dude, like you haven't kept this place up, bro. And then all of a sudden, you start hearing a bunch of commotion on the roof. You're like, what is going on? Pounding, loud noises, stuff is falling everywhere. And now the crowd is like, what? 
And everybody's looking up. And a little bit of light comes through, and you see one of the friend's face. And the friend looks down, and he sees Jesus, and he's like, yeah, he's here. Yeah, like, he's in here, guys. And so they, they keep going. They are destroying the roof, and they finally create enough space that they can lower this man down. And so follow me for a minute. The man's eyes are staring into the eyes of his faith-filled friends as they lower him into the house, little by little by little, until he gets to the point where his eyes no longer meet theirs, and he's on the ground, and he's looking up into the eyes of Jesus. And this is where he finds himself. And everyone is ready for a miraculous healing. But Jesus tells us that we have a greater need. He says, man, your sins are forgiven. Instead of healing the man first and letting him go on his way, He heals him spiritually. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing that the man's physical paralysis represents his spiritual paralysis? Are you seeing that what's true of this man is true of you and me because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Do you recognize that you have a choice to make today? Will you be like the religious, the Pharisee and the scribes who say, I'm good enough. God will receive me if I will just keep the law. And yet Paul tells us that the law was designed to crush us, to show us a picture of God's holiness and of our sin, that there is no way that we are going to be able to be set free from the reality of the sin that is upon us, the holiness of God, and compared to our sinfulness, is ridiculous as it relates to how far apart they are. The Bible says that no man can ransom another. We have no hope in and of ourselves because we are spiritually dead. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that you are spiritually dead apart from Christ? This paralyzed man was forced to believe it. He had lived his life recognizing that he could not physically get up and walk. There was nothing he could do to make himself better. It's interesting that often the, quote, least of these are the ones who can receive Jesus by faith most quickly. Because they have experienced the reality of what it means to not have power, to not have authority, to be broken, to experience the pain and brokenness of sin in this world. And this man has experienced it. And so he lays at the feet of Jesus. He has no problem realizing that his relationship with God needs to be restored. He needs to be reconciled to the Father through this man who claims to be God in the flesh. Jesus looks at the friends, he looks at the man, and he says that their faith is what has saved this man. I want to make a side note for just a minute. There has never been a time and never will be a time when salvation is found in anyone else other than Jesus Christ by his grace through faith. 
If you hear of anything else, there's nothing new under the sun, and if it's new, it's a lie. So if you hear somebody coming and telling you there's a way to God, better get ready because the Bible tells us that that has been, it will be, and it is coming. There are always those who are trying to find new age, new ways, new, new places to connect to God and be reconciled to him. Yet Jesus makes it clear it is by faith that this man's sins are forgiven. Our greatest need is not a physical reality in our lives, although we all have them. Some of us to greater degrees. Our greatest need is that we need to be reconciled to God. We need our sins forgiven. This is our greatest need. Do you believe that today? Because if you believe it, it should cause us to do at least two things. And the first is to find our place at the feet of Jesus where we can find healing and forgiveness. And the second is that it should cause us to answer this third question by raising our hand and by asking God to whom he is sending us. The third question is this, who will we, who are we bringing to Jesus? I want to stop for just a minute. And I want to ask you to remember, if you have come to faith in Christ, how did that happen? Think about it for just a minute. Let that sit in your heart. I was raised in what I thought was a Christian home. My parents took me to church every time the door was open. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I did Awanas, I did Team Kids, I did Bible Drill. And if you're familiar with the Southern Baptist Church, you know what I'm talking about. And we were there all the time. My grandparents played a significant role in my life as they continually spoke the Word of God to me. I came to Christ at the age of seven, sitting in a worship service just like this, because the Holy Spirit, Spirit was so compelling me to walk down front and to give my life to Christ when I was faced with the reality of my sinfulness and God's holiness and my need to be reconciled to him. I could do nothing else but come down front and say, Lord Jesus, heal me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Lord Jesus, make me right with you. It's all the faith I had at seven. I didn't fully understand what that meant at the time. But God in his grace has continually grown me in that knowledge. I say raised in what I thought was a Christian home because later on my parents divorced and my mom walks away from the faith and my dad gets saved. <laughs> and I look back on those who had a role in my life in bringing me to Jesus and I am forever grateful. Who was it for you? Who brought you to Jesus? Was it your mama? Was it your dad? Was it your grandparents? Was it your friends? Who told you about Christ? That forces us to ask a question, who are we going to bring to Jesus? Because if this is true, church, 
if what Jesus says about himself is real, he, if he really is the Son of Man, if he really does have the authority to forgive sins, then that changes absolutely everything for us. And it should cause us to go to those who have not heard. Here at Fellowship, we like to use the phrase, go to your neighbors and to the nations. Go to your neighbors and to the nations. God has called every single one of us in Christ to go to our neighbors. And God has called every single one of us in Christ to go to the nations in some way, shape, or form. Whether that's physically going, or whether that's partnering with those who go. I want to take a minute and I want to define for you a couple of terms that I think are important for us. And it's my prayer and and, and our hope as a church that we will be a church that sends not just to neighbors, but to nations. The first is a term called UPG or unreached people group. If you look at the screen with me, we're going to define what an unreached people group is. It's an identifiable group of people distinguished by a distinct culture, language, or social class who lack a community of Christians able to evangelize the rest of the people group without what? Outside help. Without outside help. The only opportunity for the people group to hear about salvation is through an external witness Most missiologists, that's a fancy word to say those who study the mission of God and what's going on in the world, they consider 2% of a population, that's a really small percentage, 2% of the population becoming Christ followers to be what they call a tipping point, at which the group is generally considered reached. In other words, they have enough people to reach the people in the nation. Let's go to the next slide. Then we have what's called an unengaged, unreached people group. Unengaged, unreached people group. According to Finishing the Task, which is a group organization that helps us accomplish the mission of God by figuring out where missionaries are and where they are, where unreached people groups are and where they are, There are 218 remaining unengaged, unreached people groups totaling 1,000. Did you see that number? People who have no way of hearing about Jesus Christ. The message that you just heard and that you have the privilege of hearing every week, these people have no way to hear. When they die, they are separated from God for eternity because they have not yet heard the gospel.
people who are going to die in their sins apart from Jesus. Because we've not yet gone. And it's not because we don't know where they are. Lord Jesus, have mercy on our souls. Lord Jesus, we raise our hands this morning and we just confess that we need you. We confess that you are God. We confess that you are Lord. We confess that we need to be reconciled to the Father through you. And for those of us who have been, Lord Jesus, we say thank you. We praise you. We thank you that by grace you have chosen us for yourself and drawn us for yourself. But Lord Jesus, our heart breaks for the nations. For the unreached, unengaged people and the, and the unreached people groups of our world who have not yet heard the gospel. And what was proclaimed today is more than they have ever heard unless we will go. So Jesus, you told us to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send forth laborers into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is not the problem. It's the laborers who are few. So Lord Jesus, even now in our weakness, Lord, would you call out from among us people to go to the nations? Would you bring about, Lord, the gospel to the nations? May your glory touch the lives of the people who have never heard. Lord Jesus, send us. Who will go from us? Would you call us out? Would you send us in your power? Would you draw people to yourself? Would you make us a church that is unhappy with one people group remaining? May we finish the task. May we join you in what you're doing of bringing the gospel to those who have never heard. Lord Jesus, have mercy on our souls and send us in your power, we pray in your name. Amen. Church, today we have a decision to make. Our prayer room is open. And if you're here today and you have never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just want to encourage you not to wait. Not to wait. Head back to the prayer room now. Head back to the back and receive Jesus by faith. Maybe you're here today and you've already received Christ. And he's encouraging us to do three things. He's encouraging us to pray for the lost. He's encouraging us to give to those who are going. And he's encouraging us to go to our neighbors and to the nations. Where will we go? To whom is God calling us? And to whom is God calling us together? This is our opportunity. Let's stand together and worship Christ and respond to his leading. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, you have beautiful feet. How beautiful are your feet who bring the good news. Raise your hand with me 
as we give our benediction. Church, you are sent. Say it with me. You are sent. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Go with the gospel.